We've seen a lot of tariffs and, uh, proposed and, uh, and imposed based on national security rationales. The 232s on steel and aluminum, uh, the uh, IEPA proposed tariffs on Mexico, the blacklisting of Huawei, all justified based on national security concerns. Likewise, the Jones Act uh, is really a protectionist scheme uh, that is masquerading as a national security imperative. The Jones Act, which is formerly known as the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, specifically Section uh, 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, was named for Senator Wesley Jones of Washington State, who in the wake of World War I uh, thought that the United States was ill-prepared for wars and national emergencies and thought that we really needed to, uh, uh, to ramp up our sea lift capacity. So Jones' legis legislation was predicated it was presented as a plan to, to ensure an adequate domestic shipbuilding capacity, a diversified fleet of ships, uh, uh, ocean-going vessels in the United States, a ready supply of uh, merchant mariners to serve the country in times of war, and national emergencies. If you do a little bit of digging into the history prior to 1920, it appears that maybe Senator Jones was motivated by uh, protecting Washington State's uh, shipping industry, which uh, had a monopoly on shipping routes to Alaska and was concerned about having to compete with the Canadians. The Jones Act has imposed a variety of costs on the U.S. economy, which really should have been foreseen, uh, could have been avoided, and have grown worse over time. And that's what I want to talk a little bit about here today. Those costs fall roughly into six broad categories. Transportation costs, uh, the environmental costs, which, are, which really have uh, never been uh, uh, accounted for lost wages and lost output attributable to traffic problems that can be attributed to the Jones Act, uh, infrastructure and repair costs. Uh, we, we tend to have much, much more significant infrastructure costs because there are more trucks on the road than there needs to be. Uh, foregone domestic sales, uh, which means the cost of, tr of transporting intra-industry or to downstream uh, firms in the United States. Uh, is sometimes uh, prohibitive because of the lack of availability of Jones Act vessels. And then foregone export revenues. Of course, the Jones Act is a trade barrier. And because we maintain this trade barrier, we protect our, you know, our, 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 the shipbuilders and, and carrier service providers. Uh, and so that, that's a problem that foreign governments keep their, their, their markets more closed than they otherwise would. Uh, it's on the offensive agenda of a lot of our trading partners to get the United States to reduce uh, our barriers there. So we have a forthcoming paper that's going to go into the, those costs. More recently, just last month, the OECD published a study that found that the costs of the Jones Act to the United States, uh, if we were to get rid of it entirely, it would be a, about, equivalent to about a $64 billion boon to GDP. If we got rid of just the build requirement, it would be um, uh, 17, I think, or 19 uh, billion dollars. So again, the Jones Act restricts cabotage services, shipping them from port to port or point to point to, to ships that are built in the United States, uh, that are owned by Americans, that are crewed by Americans, and that sail under the US flag. That really limits uh, the, the, uh, the number of ships. Facing no competition, shipbuilders have no real reason to be produced cost efficiently and to price uh, competitively. Uh, this is a predictable outcome, and the evidence uh, uh, supports it. The cost of building a ship in the United States is significantly higher than the costs anywhere else in the world, just about anywhere else in the world. Um, the estimates of the differentials depend on the type of vessels we're talking about, but the U.S. build cost is on average uh, four to eight times greater than the comparable ship uh, built in a foreign, foreign shipyard. 
uh, a Congressional Research Service report in 2017 said recent U.S. built uh, coastal sized container ships have a price range of 190 million to 250 million, which is six to eight times greater than the cost of a coastal or feeder ship of a, a similar size built in a foreign shipyard, which is about 30 uh, million. In some cases, the cost differentials are smaller, in some cases, they're larger, but that's about what the average is. Uh, in recent years, as you know, the U.S. has become a major producer and exporter of uh, oil and natural gas, but our shipyards can't produce and sell oil tankers or liquefied natural gas ships at any prices that are competitive. Uh, domestically built tankers are estimated to be about four times the price of foreign built tankers, and there's limited capacity in U.S. shipyards to build them. We haven't had a liquefied natural gas carrier built in the United States in a U.S. shipyard since 1980. Uh, none are currently registered under the U.S. flag. Uh, the Government Accountability Office estimates that the cost to build an LNG carrier in the U.S. is between 400 and 675 million dollars which is more than four times, which is two to four times the cost uh, in a Korean shipyard, 175 million. They, they have about 250 or, or more uh, in service lately. Um, the high price tags on these U.S. Uh, sh ships limit demand, which in turn means that there are fewer, uh, fewer ships that are built. Fewer ships mean uh, that fewer ships built mean that there's less scope for economies of scale, which is important in shipbuilding. Uh, it's one of the reasons that the Asian shipyards do so much better uh, than the United States. The major Korean, Japanese, and Chinese shipyards deliver about 50 to 80 large uh, commercial ships per year on average. The U.S. shipyards deliver three to five. Given the high prices needed to cover the cost of acquiring the ships, why would anybody buy them? Why would U.S. carriers buy them? Well, they're protected also. Uh, Shipping from port to port in the United States has to be done on U.S.-built ships, and you have to be a U.S.-owned, flagged, and crewed, crewed ship. Um, so with, with no foreign competition in the service, in the domestic cabotage market, U.S. carriers are free to charge uh, you know, exorbitant rates to recoup the excessive costs of acquiring and operating these, these, these ships. Um, and it turns out that they focus all of their service on areas where there's no competition from road or rail the non-contiguous states, so Hawaii, Alaska, Puerto Rico. There are four shippers that, that ship to San Juan from the United States from two locations, Elizabeth, New Jersey, and Jacksonville, Florida. And the rates are about twice the rate that it would take to ship from the United States to uh, Santo Domingo or uh, Kingston or you know, a, a, a non-US uh, place. 3,063 to ship a 20-foot container of household and commercial goods from the east coast of the United States to Puerto Rico. Same shipment, 1,504 to Santo Domingo, 1,687 to Kingston, Jamaica. California State Senator reported recently that the cost, it cost about $790 to ship a 40-foot container from Los Angeles to Shanghai, but it cost 8,700 to ship the same container from Los Angeles to Honolulu, a rate that's 11 times higher to go less than half the distance. Over the past 50 years, domestic freight tonnage moved by railroads has increased by 48%. Oil pipelines, 106%. By trucks, 217%. But the tonnage moved by coastal shipping has declined by 44%. So uh, the rates for all of these modes goes up as a result of this. So transportation costs overall go up. So even for businesses that have no choice, they have to use trucks, they, the, 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 rates on, the truck rates go up. Uh, and transportation costs go up. Transportation costs amounted to about $2.2 trillion uh, in 2017. 
Trucks also generate more pollutants, more particulate matter than ships. There are a lot of moving parts in these calculations. We have some research that we're going to be publishing soon, and that research suggests uh, that if we could get 10 to 25 percent uh, of the ton miles traveled on the road, off the road, and on, onto, the, onto the water, uh, the, the, the benefit to the economy would be 5 to 12 billion dollars per year. If coastal shipping were used, if, if we get 10 to 25 percent of, uh, of the trucks off the road or freight moved by truck off the road and onto the water, uh, the savings would be approximately 1.7 to 4.4 billion in terms of lost wages uh, re recouped um, if, if we were able to, to do that. Infrastructure costs are also especially relevant now because, well, the administration and Congress is talking about an infrastructure bill and spending a lot of taxpayer dollars. Um, we, uh, there's a lot of repair of roads, there's a lot of <coughs> dredging of harbors uh, to accommodate these, these mega container ships. You know, we widen the Panama Canal uh, so that these ships can deliver uh, cargo to the East Coast and, and turns out that only about seven of the 44 Atlantic and Gulf Coast ports are deep enough to accommodate these post-Panamax and, and larger ships. And we have very few companies in the United States that do dredging. If we're talking about spending a trillion dollars on infrastructure, uh, if, if the taxpayers are going to get a decent bang for their buck, we need to have some competition. We need to allow more efficient uh, uh, companies, shipping companies, dredgers who you know, work in the lowland countries of uh, Western Europe who've been battling nature for, for centuries uh, to come and help us out. Estimating the cost of the Jones Act in that realm to be 10 to 20 billion dollars per year. So if we start with the OECD's numbers, which are the most comprehensive ones that I've seen published so far, and we add on this range of numbers that I just gave you, uh, I think the benefits from Jones Act repeal uh, could be between $40.7 billion a year and $113 billion a year. The United States was dependent on foreign flag vessels to transport needed supplies and equipment. No fewer than 177 foreign flag commercial ships were chartered by the United States, which transported more than a fifth of total dry cargo and more than a quarter of total unit cargo. In fact, the United States found itself so desperate for sea left that we twice asked the Soviet Union to borrow one of their ships. So where was the Jones Act fleet? Since operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm, the U.S. fleet, in terms of ocean-going ships, has only further atrophied, and along with it, the mariners that crew them. The impact of this decline on mariners was underscored by a 2017 report from the Maritime Administration, which warned that in a wartime scenario, the United States would be at least 1,800 mariners short of those needed to perform both sustained sea lift operations and crew the U.S. commercial fleet. Alarmingly, that projection represents a best-case scenario, which assumes that all mariners with unlimited credentials are available. The situation is equally grim on the shipbuilding front. As Dan just mentioned, from 1983 to 2013, we saw approximately 300 shipyards close. And the employment has gone from, I think, 186,000 in 1981 to 94,000 as of last year. Today, there are four major shipyards that produce commercial ocean-going ships for the Jones Act fleet. Of those four, one of them, the Philly shipyard, is currently producing no ships. It has no ships on its order books. It laid off two-thirds of its workforce last year, and last I checked, had less than 100 employees. Surveying the maritime state of affairs last year, the head of the U.S. Transportation Command, General Darren McDew, testified before Congress that while the Jones Act was intended to provide a baseline of business to support both U.S. shipping and shipbuilding, 
that the domestic fleet's dwindling size, quote, demands that we reassess our approach, unquote, and that the country may need to, quote, rethink policies of the past in order to face an increasingly competitive future, unquote. Indeed, the Jones Act is in many ways a law that is at war with itself that tries to accomplish its goals through contradictory means. In addition, the law is out of step with numerous trends that have developed since its passage, which call its logic into question. Item number one, the glaring tension between shipping and shipbuilding. As we all know, the Jones Act mandates that vessels used in domestic commerce have to be U.S. built. This is clearly meant to benefit U.S. shipbuilders. But as already been explained, U.S. built ships are vastly more expensive than those built abroad, meaning that the operators of these ships are effectively footing the bill for what amounts to a massive subsidy to the shipbuilding sector. These grossly inflated shipbuilding prices make new ships less attractive to purchase, more expensive to operate, and consequently a less attractive option for transporting goods. This means fewer ships to meet the needs of the U.S. economy and provide the ships and mariners that the country needs in time of war or national emergency. And even U.S. shipyards are harmed because fewer ships means less maintenance and repair work for those ships, for those shipyards to work on. In other words, the Jones Act's failed pursuit of a robust shipbuilding capability through a captive market is in direct conflict with the law's stated goal of creating a merchant marine capable of serving as, quote, a military or auxiliary uh, in time of war or national emergency. This reduction in ship frustrates the Jones Act's ability to achieve another policy goal of having sufficient mariners to crew government-owned and commercial ships in wartime. This inherent conflict hasn't been lost in other observers. Writing in 1993, former uh, head of U.S. Transportation Command General Dwayne Cassidy said that if he was king for a day that one of his decrees would be to decouple the U.S. flag carrier industry from the shipbuilding industry. Quote, the continued yoking of these two industries stifles competition for both. Carriers, to be competitive, need to buy ships where the market dictates like any other U.S. business. Item number two, costlier ships. In 1922, a government report found that U.S. built ships were 20% more expensive than foreign ships. That's significant, but perhaps not crippling. By the 1930s, they were 50% more expensive. By the 1950s, they were double the cost. By the 1990s, they were triple the cost. Today, it's commonly estimated that U.S.-built ships are four to five times more expensive. I think it's worth asking ourselves, if the Jones Act was put before us today, would we have passed a law with those kind of cost differentials in place? Item number three, the divide between commercial and naval shipbuilding. A key assumption behind the Jones Act's U.S. build requirement is that it promotes U.S. shipbuilding, which ensures the existence of shipyards for the construction of vessels for the U.S. military. The degree of overlap between Jones Act commercial shipbuilding and naval shipbuilding, however, is not nearly as great as many observers may believe. A 2019 report from the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments notes, quote, most shipyards that build larger U.S. Navy and Coast Guard vessels do not generally construct commercial vessels, unquote. Out of the country's major shipyards, there's only one, NASCO General Dynamics in San Diego, which constructs both large military and commercial ships, while the Philly shipyard doesn't build any military vessels. In fact, they're not building anything. A recent analysis performed by two scholars at the American Enterprise Institute calculated that for six of the country's largest military shipbuilding firms, Jones Act merchant vessels amount accounted for a mere 5% of orders since 2000. This finding dovetails with the 2013 GAO report, which noted that the vast majority of military vessels built at seven major shipyards, some of which, quote, also construct a small number of commercial vessels. Item number four, the dependence on foreign parts and know-how. Jones Act supporters may be tempted to believe that the high cost of U.S.-built ships is a small price to pay in exchange for freeing the United States from a dependence on foreign shipbuilding, but this is an illusion. 
To comply with the Jones Act's domestic build mandate, ships must be assembled in the United States and all major components of the hull and superstructure fabricated domestically. This means, however, that other key parts of the ship can be, and often are, produced abroad. A container ship built last year by the Philly shipyard, the Daniel K. Inouye, for example, had its uh, you know, foreign components such as the main generator engines are foreign, the steering gear, the auxiliary boiler, the propulsion engine, the maneuvering thruster, and the propeller. U.S. shipyards may be engaged in the construction of ocean-going commercial ships, albeit at frightfully high costs. Item number five, the questionable utility of Jones Act ships in wartime. For Jones Act, ship, Jones Act ships that are assembled in U.S. shipyards, it's unclear how much benefit they offer to the U.S. military. Built for commercial purposes, their capabilities do not always align with those demanded by the military. As a 1984 Congressional Budget Office report noted, quote, there is a growing dichotomy between those features that produce a commercially efficient ship and those that yield ships that are useful for support of military operations. In general, the most militarily useful ships have three features. They're relatively small, so they can get into shallow waters. They're flexible in terms of the types of cargo they can carry. They're also self-sustaining with cranes that can load and unload their cargo. They're not dependent on shoreside facilities. Unfortunately, these characteristics are at odds with the most efficient commercial ships, which tend to be large, specialized, and dependent on port facilities. This gap seems to have only widened in the years since that report was written. A 2016 report from National Defense University, for example, noted the ships needed to transport military equipment and cargo do not, quote, do not always line up with the vessels demanded by the market for moving commercial merchandise across waterways. And a 2015 CRS report pointed out that, quote, the trend towards highly specialized and larger ships in the commercial sector appears inconsistent with the military shipping needs, unquote. The divide between military and commercial shipping needs appears particularly pronounced in terms of U.S. built ship. This is the basis of the Jones Act fleet. And a 2010 CRS report flatly stated, quote, very few commercial ships with high military utility have been constructed in U.S. shipyards in the last 20 years. Item number six, limited ship availability. As already mentioned, despite the pressing need for sea lift during the Persian Gulf War, only a single Jones Act ship was pressed into service to support the military's transportation needs. This is likely explained by the fact that the limited number of Jones Act ships in existence are vital to meeting the country's domestic transportation needs, particularly in non-contiguous states and territories. Thus, pulling ships from those trades could introduce considerable havoc through the disruption of key supply linkages. It's for this reason that even defenders of the Jones Act admit to the limited wartime utility of such vessels. Said Lauren Thompson, Chief Operating Officer of the Lexington Institute recently, quote, Today, the only commercial ships being built in the United States are those destined for the Jones Act routes. This is not a lot of vessels, and if war broke out, most of them would already be engaged in other tasks. Now, given the Jones Act's contradictory methods and increasingly out-of-step nature with modern shipping realities, it seems logical to conclude that its contributions to national security are overstated and diminishing. But there's also good reason to think that the Jones Act is a net national security liability that has played a causal role in the decline of the U.S. maritime industry that a law ostensibly meant to strengthen maritime industries such as shipbuilding would actually have the opposite effect should not be a surprise. It's worth noting, for example, that the rising fortunes of British commercial shipbuilding in the mid-1800s appears at least partly due to the UK's decision to complete the discarding of its protectionist navigation acts. As author Clinton Whitehurst notes, quote, another major factor that contributed to British shipbuilding and shipping success was the repeal in 1849 of the last of the navigation acts. The English built ship was protected from foreign competition and that foreign ships were excluded not only from England's colonial trade, but from home trade as well. 
The result of this protectionism was at best a mixed blessing. While these statutes ensured English shipbuilding profits, shipping profits, they acted as a tranquilizer with regard to improvement in building wooden sailing ships. It's impossible to know exactly how U.S. shipbuilding would have fared absent the Jones Act and protectionist maritime laws. In many other merchant, uh, major maritime countries, shipbuilding is viewed from a global perspective. This is not the case in the United States, which where only 1% to 2% of the world merchant fleet is now built. The U.S. shipbuilding industry is basically quite different from that of Europe, Japan, and Korea. Those countries have built most of today's modern shipping fleets and compete for orders in a world market. The United States does not. This is completely logical. Through the Jones Act's domestic build requirement, American shipyards have become incentivized to orient themselves away from the international market and towards this captive market for shipbuilding. This in turn means reduced output and lessened degrees of specialization and competition, all of which are vital towards increased productivity and lowered costs. 2009 National Defense University report says that partial blame for the lack of U.S. shipbuilding competitiveness can be placed on, quote, protectionist policies such as the Jones Act that have shielded domestic shipbuilders from the pressures of global competition, while a 2007 National Defense University report sounded a similar note. Quote, U.S. shipyards are not currently cost competitive in any of the major classes of large ships, and their annual market is limited to six to ten large Jones Act ships destined for the domestic trade. Since the total Jones Act requirement is only a small fraction of the output of the largest Asian yards, the U.S. shipbuilding industry is locked in a cost-quantity trap, one that it appears unlikely to escape. This lack of shipbuilding competitiveness has wreaked havoc with the maritime industry and undermined national security. As the 2019 CRS report notes, the high cost of U.S. shipbuilding has prompted the Department of Defense to revisit a plan to build sea lift ships domestically and instead buy used foreign-built ships. Said the Secretary of the Navy just last month, quote, I can't afford a lot of $600 million ships. I can't afford a lot of $400 million ships when I can go out and buy used row rows for $35 to $40 million. As already discussed, these high shipbuilding costs means fewer ships and fewer mariners. But beyond a reduction in the raw number of ocean-going ships, the fleet also suffers from a lack of numerous ship types, such as LNG tankers and livestock carriers. Of more direct relevance to the military, the fleet also doesn't feature any heavy lift vessels. According to the Congressional Research Service, this has forced the DOD to, quote, use national defense waivers of the Jones Act to move radar systems and newly built vessels on foreign flag heavy lift vessels. In addition, the Jones Act encourages the use of vessels that would otherwise be considered past their useful life outside of the protected Jones Act market. As of April, nearly one-third of the Jones Act fleet was built in 1994 or older. Among the 43 non-tanker ships, 27 were at least 25 years of age. To place this in perspective, the head of MARAD, Mark Busby, recently testified before Congress that, quote, it's rare to find ships in the commercial world beyond 15 to 20 years of age. The advanced age of these ships and their presumably deteriorated condition would seem to call into question their ability to serve as a naval or military auxiliary as stated in the law's purpose. Dan already mentioned the OECD study. Something else that OECD study points out is rather than imperiling the U.S. shipbuilding industry, repealing the Jones Act has the potential to increase U.S. commercial shipbuilding output from $859 million to $1.47 billion. The Jones Act isn't working.